So, how many more announcements would you like? It is fun to see uh, the family uh, exercised out in that way. It's, uh, it's a lot all at once in one Sunday morning, and yet, uh, like Terrence said, our hope is that you would see that there's a great deal of deliberateness uh, put into this functioning rightly. Um, and so none of, nothing is done haphazardly and nothing is done halfway. And so hopefully that's seen by you. Um, I would like to allow the children who have been so patient to be off into the world that they would rather be in, which is not here. So you are dismissed to go and enjoy kids' church, kids' class, make a craft, all that stuff. They're actually working on crafting announcements today. That's their a big assignment. That's a big thing in the church. It wasn't that funny, was it? Okay. Other thing is, if you are a guest with us, we are glad that you are here. Uh, we are glad that you've chosen to give us just a moment of your time. And so we have uh, these cards out on the info table. It's a connect card. And so what we'd ask is that as you make your way out those doors, you go to your right, you find that information table. If you would fill out one of these little brown cards, throw your information on there. Uh, our way of saying thanks to you is to offer you one of the mugs that's sitting right there on the table. But what that is, is an invitation um, for you that you would be inviting us into uh, reaching out, checking in, seeing how you're doing, how we can pray for you, how we can serve you, and how you might become part of this family. And so um, just want to make that plain to you and make that aware. And then we get to move on. And so what we're doing today is, uh, I believe we're in week three of our uh, Higher and Deeper series. And really excited about where we have been. We have talked about prayer, and we've talked about treasure, and we've talked about them in the light of Matthew 6. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is um, giving what any theologian would call the greatest sermon ever given. He, he just is attacking so many things uh, in such succession that for us, we said we're going to spend a month and we're going to take one little slice of it and just unpack it and see uh, the richness that is there. And so we've talked about prayer, we've talked about treasure uh, today, uh, coming out of those two things, uh, especially interesting to me that coming straight out of Jesus addressing money, he then addresses anxiety and worry, as if he knew that humanity would have a struggle with that. And so what I'm going to do is read from uh, Matthew 6, uh, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, for this reason, as he's finished talking about money, he says, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, uh, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Is the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who uh, of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So as we talk about this idea, Jesus says, don't worry. And then as he closes, he says, so remember, he just said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Here's why. And then he closes by saying, now, don't worry. 
we have to define what is that he's attacking here. We're, we're talking about anxiety, and what is anxiety really? Well, how do we define that in our culture so we know what it is that he's uh, speaking against? I would define anxiety as the will to control the uncontrollable. Anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. A lot of you have experienced this. Uh, those of you who are sports fans, when you are sitting on your couch, and, and, and I've heard these stories, so you can deny that you've ever done this or said this, but when people will be sitting in one uh, position, and then they'll like, get up to get a drink, and they'll sit in a different chair, and all of a sudden their team will start doing poorly, and they'll say things like, oh, I have to go back to the original seat. We have to get back where we were. Everybody back where you were. And these weird sort of like, like maybe, maybe that'll help. Oh, well, I always wear this shirt, but I have to wear it inside out because the first time we won, I was inside out. And so I always wear my lucky socks and this shirt, and that's, that's why we win. We know we're lying to ourselves, right? And yet, what's in that? It's the will to control the uncontrollable. I want to have some part of controlling this thing because the other thing we don't want to admit is some people actually experience like real anxiety when you're on the couch watching people you've never met do things on, on sports. You're watching the NBA Finals, and the, war, the, the Cavs are down 3-1, and you feel legitimate anxiety that this may not end well. This is just bizarre. Why do you feel anxiety? Because you have no control over what's happening, and yet something in you really, really wants to. It's bigger than that, obviously. Uh, anxiety in life is bigger than anxiety in, as sports fans. You know this feeling, too. You wake up with heartburn. You wake up with a headache because you've been grinding your teeth at night because your jaw has been set because you can't let go of that thing that is just eating away the back of your brain. We have this sense sometimes that life is just sort of tossing us around. There's a word for that. It's called Gevorfenheit. I'm going to make you say that. Say Gevorfenheit. All right, Gevorfenheit is a, it's a, a term from German existentialism, which you didn't think you'd be hearing about today. And it means thrownness, thrownness. This idea in German existentialism is that potentially we live in a world where it's sort of like you're in the spin cycle, like you just have no control whatsoever. And, and the Germans gave this, this word to it because there was no other way to describe what it felt to be sort of hurtling through space, unable to make sense of anything. There's no rhyme or reason to the day. There's, there's no sense of control over what's happening. There's a perception when you enter into Gevorfenheit. There's this perception that I was in control, but now? True anxiety is a, is a terrible feeling. And it's a growing feeling. Look at the research about anxiety in our culture. And diagnoses of a clinical anxiety and medication toward stemming anxiety. Anxiety is not getting better. It's, it's getting worse in our culture. Anxiety is caused by the illusion of control having been erased. Anxiety is caused when the boss comes in and sits down across from you and says, we need to have a talk. Because two minutes earlier, there was an illusion that we had control over our professional destiny, and the boss sits down across from us and says, this is not easy for me to tell you, and then we feel thrown. This loss of illusion is when the doctor comes in and says, I think you better sit down. And we desire control. Doc, I eat well, I, I exercise, I, and he says, I need to let you know this is the way this is going. 
There, there's the loss of control there, but the reality is it was an illusion that we've lost because we never had it in the first place. We feel thrown. Reality, once we hit that scenario, once we get into that position, is that we're always reliant on something greater than ourselves, that we're always vulnerable to, to forces outside of our control. And so what we learn is this Gevorfenheit, this, this idea, is actually the state of our everyday lives. But we've, we've convinced ourselves over the years that we're in way more control than we actually are. When the reality is that we've never actually been in charge. Like we're here through some set of circumstances we had nothing to do with. We're well fed because of trick of geography of where we were born or a break at the right time of our lives. Or There are a billion people that are really hungry right now. And they have the exact same amount of uh, control over getting into their situation as we did of getting into ours. But until we step back, until we feel the loss of that, we convince ourselves that we're really in a great state of control. The reality is we're insecure at our core, and it terrifies us to consider that. And so we push that feeling off as long as we can. It's terrifying. It creates anxiety to consider that we're not in control. And so we don't consider it. And we surround ourselves with more and more things that give us the illusion of control because that feels better than the idea that we're hurtling on a rock through space. Reinhold Niebuhr, a 20th century uh, theologian, penned a prayer as he was going through this. It's a prayer that most people in this room will have heard many times before. He said, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. How many of you have already heard the serenity prayer? Yeah. Niebuhr says, the school of modern psychology regards the will to power. The will to power is humanity's desire to always be grabbing more. More power, more control, more of our own will. He says, the school of modern psychology regards the will to power as the most dominant of human motives. And yet has not recognized how basically it is related to our insecurity. That the human desire for more, for more power, more money, more control, more prestige, that's ultimately related to a deep-set insecurity. And the anxiety, that insecurity creates an anxiety that fuels us on to try to get more. He says the human ego does not feel secure. Therefore, it grasps for more power in order to make itself feel secure. It doesn't regard itself as sufficiently significant or respected, and so it seeks to enhance its position. What Niebuhr is saying is we feel insecure. We see control and power as a means to security. And so what a psychologist would say is the will to power. I, as a human being, am hardwired to try to control and dominate everything. A theologian says, no, it's a deep-set insecurity that we know within us. We're not as significant as we want to be in and of ourselves. And yet scripture would say we're hardwired for something greater. In the garden, we were hardwired as humanity to be kings and queens, to be overseers. God said, this is all yours. The animals, the plants, it's yours. We were called stewards. Stewards of all. God basically said, you're stewards of everything but me. So you're, I'm God and you're there. 
a steward, as we look at the Bible, and as every time you read that in Scripture, a steward it basically means a slave with authority. It means you are under submission of another, but you have incredible authority. So a steward is a slave with authority. The problem with us as humanity that continues today is we like the idea of being given authority. We don't like the idea of being under somebody. And so what happened in the garden is the same thing that happens today is we want to be our own gods. We want to be our own masters. We want more control, more power. And so when God says, don't eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the, the sin is man says, I don't want to be under somebody. I want to be above everybody. We're insecure because we lack power. And it's a vicious cycle because the more power we desire, the more we realize how much we lack control. And every time we gain more, we realize that there's still more to gain, which leaves us feeling even more anxious because I'm working doubly as hard and I'm still not at the top. Luther had a friend who asked him what he should do about his anxiety in his life. He, I can't stop worrying. I have so much anxiety. A friend comes to Luther and says, what do I do? And Luther's response was, let Philip cease to rule the world. You want to get rid of the anxiety in your life. He says, let Philip cease to rule the world. That's, that's the answer. Maybe we should put our own names in there. Let Kyle cease to rule the world. Do you want to see my anxiety go away when I recognize I'm not in control? Maybe some of my anxiety goes with it. So we talked about what anxiety is. The question that you would be sitting here wondering is how do you cure this? Like, like that's a nice little pithy saying, but I don't actually know how to apply that to my life. So what is it that can be done to cure anxiety? I think there's two things that cause it. There's wrong thinking and wrong priorities. What Jesus is laying out in Matthew 6 is we have wrong thinking and wrong priorities. Thinking, Jesus says, look at the birds. Look at the birds and observe the lilies. The word consider, it means to deeply ponder. So Jesus says, deeply, really, truly ponder these birds. Ponder the lilies. What Jesus is saying is if you are anxious, you're not thinking. If you're anxious, you're not thinking. See, there's this silly idea that faith is some sort of trust fall. Like we're taught that faith is the absence of thinking. And people give this advice all the time, and I wish they wouldn't give this advice, much less receive it. I've gotten this advice. Somebody says, oh, brother, faith means you stop thinking and you start trusting the Lord. What? What does that even mean? Jesus says, you want to get rid of anxiety? Start thinking. You want to grow your faith? Keep thinking. What does he mean? Jesus says, consider. Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you insecure? Stop and consider. Look at the facts is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, look at the birds. Stop, stop this feeling and start thinking. It's as if Jesus is saying, we need to have a better argument with ourselves. And this is not some uh, masculine tenet, feelings are evil, and it's not that. Jesus is saying, you need to have an argument between what you can think and what you can feel, because what's reality is not always what you're feeling. And we get so caught up in what we feel that we don't stop to consider what reality is telling us. And so, so Jesus says, stop and think. I had a friend that had a three-year-old little girl. And one night he 
He says she cries out from her room. He races up to the room. Says, Daddy, there's, there's this mean cat under the bed. You know, at like 2 a.m. you're going, I don't think there's a mean cat under the bed, but you know, you're okay. So he does what any good dad does, and he lifts up the bed skirt, and he looks under, and no cat under the bed, honey. There's, there's no cat. Can I see? Yeah, yeah, come, come look. She sees, no cat. Lights are on, we're okay, back to bed, sleep tight. 15 minutes later, daddy! Runs back up, a little bit more skeptical this time. What is it? The cat's gone? And he's like, that's what you called me up here for? No, there's an evil horsey under the bed. (laughs) But she's three, and he's a dad, so what does he do? Under the bed skirt. Lifts it up. Come over here, honey. Turn the light on. There's no horse under the bed. Oh, okay. I feel better. Thanks. He leaves. He doesn't even get to the bottom of the stairs. Daddy! Comes back up. They're in the closet. He opens the closet doors. He shows them what's happening. A storm is broiling outside. He says, I think I might actually get to sleep now that I've opened the closet. I've lifted the the bed skirt. I've showed everything I could possibly show. There's nothing in this room. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. He gets back to his room. Daddy! Daddy! The horse is invisible and he's shooting light because the lightning, you know. He says, what, what else could I do? I, I showed very clearly that there was no evil horse in the room. This was a really easy thing to do, actually. I said, look, there is no evil horse. And yet, half a dozen more times I'm up in her room consoling this child who's totally convinced that there's an evil horse in the closet shooting lightning bolts out of its eyes. Aren't we the same? We are bundles of anxiety. God opens the closet. God looks under the bed. God turns on the lights. It doesn't change anything for us. He says, yeah, 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 but dad, I might not eat. And God goes, no, no, I got you covered. Look at the birds. You're going to be okay. Yeah, 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 but what if my job doesn't go well, and then what if this thing happens and I don't get that raise, or the house falls through, or, or, or then what? God, do you not even care about me? And God opens the closet door again, and he goes, look, I, I promise. And yet, we're like toddlers that are constantly fighting off this anxiety that maybe God, maybe God's not behind us, actually. Faith is a position of confidence towards the world based on what God has said in his word. Faith is not a trust fall. Faith is a position of confidence towards the world based on what God has said in his word. So if you have no faith in God's word, then you truly have geworfenheit. Then you truly have thrownness because then there is nothing to rest on. There's nothing to be rooted in. There's nothing to be uh, cemented onto. Then we're truly thrown and we are just out there. All is chanced. All is thrown. And for real... We're screwed at that point. We really are. If we don't have faith in God's word and we don't read his word and say, what is it that your word said is true, then everything else is feelings and emotions, it's chemicals, it's circumstances, it's situations, and we, we have nothing to be rooted in. And so we have to learn how to struggle to win the argument between how we're feeling and what we know to be true from God's word. So there are two arguments that Jesus gives us to know and repeat. The first is the birds of the air argument. The second is the grass of the field. So I want you to leave with both today. First, birds of the air. He says, look at the birds of the air. 
They don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? This is about providence. God is in charge of the birds. He gives them what they need. Romans 8.28 says that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He says he knows what we need, and he's working all of this out for us. I have no help with anxiety if we don't believe that. If we don't believe that God is ultimately working this out for us, maybe not this minute, maybe not this hour, maybe not this decade, but that ultimately his desire is to see us made whole. If we can believe that, then we can trust that the good God of the universe is providing. The reality is when you give up being the center of the universe, you can trust God to take care of you like you are now central to him. When we stop thinking that we are the center of the universe, we place God back in his proper position as father, as creator, as author. And what father withholds from his child? Which leads to the grass of the field argument. God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? This is about love. This is that God, God loves you. And, and you know God loves you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows your deepest desires. He knows your greatest fears. Scripture would tell us that he didn't spare his own son in our hour of need. And your anxiety says, maybe he's withholding from me. Practically, anxiety is you waking up every day to tell God, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. That's what anxiety is. It's waking up to say, God, I don't know if you have my best interest in mind. I don't think if you really, I don't know. It's a today-centric point of view. As if, if we could zoom out like God could zoom out, God would say, yeah, but I sent Jesus way back then when I, you weren't even born yet, and I got this whole thing figured out, and if you could zoom out, if you could just see what I could see. And we go, yeah, yeah, God, that's, that's good and all. That Jesus thing was cool, but what have you done for me lately? It's been 2,000 years since that. I mean, I need a raise. Come on. Which is saying, yeah, God, you emptied heaven. Yeah, God, you gave your son, but I don't think you have a plan for managing my week. I don't think you can handle this thing that I've got coming up. Isn't that offensive? Like, that's offensive. You ever been second-guessed by someone who had no right to question you? When my eight-year-old was a four-year-old, my eight-year-old really thought she knew directions better than me. So backseat driving is not a whole lot of fun when it's an adult, but some part of you thinks maybe they know what they're talking about. When your backseat driver is four, it's pretty frustrating. Dad, you missed the turn. You can't even see over the headrest. What are you talking about? No, nope, no, Dad, you're supposed to go left there. And I'm like, hold up your hands. Which one is left? And she's like doing that thing. I don't know. But she's convinced that, that somehow... I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like getting like irrationally enraged by this, you know? Why is my four-year-old telling me what to do? And I, it's a metaphorical rage because I'm offended that she has any inkling of thought in her brain that she has the right to tell me where to go. This is us. God, I don't, I don't know if you, God, you missed that turn back there. I was supposed to be wealthier at this point. God, did you, you should have gone left. And God's like, you don't know what you're talking about. 
I breathed you into existence. I brought you to this place. I have a plan for you. This may not feel like fun right now, but I promise it's going to be beneficial. And we're in the backseat going, man, this God thing, I don't know. Wrong thinking is that God won't provide what I need or that God doesn't value me enough to take care of me. That's wrong thinking. Wrong priorities are a whole other thing. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and all things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom and all things will be added to you. If we prioritize anything over Christ, then it becomes the chief source of anxiety. That's a lot to take in. When we prioritize anything over Christ, it becomes the chief source of our anxiety. So I would challenge you to follow the breadcrumbs from fear and anxiety in your life. What keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? What consumes your thoughts? What thing gives you heartburn? What what has you set your jaw? That sour feeling in your stomach, what, what does that to you? You can follow the breadcrumbs from fear and anxiety to a place where Christ is not central. Or something has not been submitted to, to God as God's, God, you own this. And you will direct this. So when we get out of a place of obedience and into a place of control, then anxiety starts because we can't keep that car on the road. Seek first his kingdom. But what does that mean? It's a story from World War II that a a small business owner was visited by the queen. The widget he made was needed for the war effort. And she was going business to business, personally appealing that people would uh, close their doors, donate all of their equipment and their expertise to help further the war effort. This businessman was reticent to to close his business. He said, I've only been open 18 months, but I've made it. And if I close now, I'll surely go out of business. I I can't afford to close. I can't afford to donate my stuff, much less not be here every day to open the door and sell my goods. Because if I'm not here, the thing will go under. As the story goes, the queen looks back at this small business owner and she says, if you mind my business, I'll mind yours. At that moment, he got it. Because he had absolute power in Britain saying, if you look after me, I got your back. You'll be fine. And he went from anxiety that maybe this whole thing will break down to going, wait, wait, wait. If the queen is behind this and she knows, I got nothing to worry about. Because no matter how this goes, she's going to mind my business for me. She's going to take care to make sure that I'm still open. She's not going to let me down. So if I can just give, okay, I can do this. Fear dissipates when absolute power is behind us. Seek first the kingdom and all things will be added to you. What is it that we're holding in our lives that we've said, God, you can have this and you can have this and you can have this and we'll pray about that and we'll even sometimes submit this thing, but this other piece, that's me. God is saying, if you mind my business, I'll mind yours. There are two kinds of people Really, really two kinds of people in the world. Everybody on earth believes Jesus existed for the most part. Every major religion uh, doesn't doubt the, the historicity of Christ. Jesus was a real person. Go to Judaism, go to Islam. Jesus, no one says Jesus didn't exist. They question whether or not he was God. So, so almost all humanity would agree that Jesus was a, a historical figure. 
But the other type of person, there's only two. One says, I believe he existed. The other says, I'm willing to trust him. Believe in him to save us, but do we trust in him enough to obey? I think ultimately what anxiety is about is do we believe in God or do we believe God? There's a profound difference between believing in God and believing God. A lot of us believe in God, but we don't believe him when it comes to what he says about our lives. And the the anxiety trick, that hurdle to get over is to going, now I not only believe in you that you're real, but I'm willing to believe you when you say that you have my best interest in mind, that you're going to take care of me, that you will provide for me. Life is hard. Everybody in this room is fighting a battle. Everybody in this room is marked by brokenness. Even those of us who uh, clean up the best. Doesn't matter what you have on the outside, every single one of us carries scars from the past. Every single one of us has brokenness today. And so God, a good and a gracious Father, wants nothing more than to care for you and to carry you through it. So today is kind of a a hard application to make around the scripture. When it comes to being more prayerful, we can set an alarm to pray, or we can get someone to check up on us every day to make sure we're we're doing our prayer thing. When it comes to being generous with our finances, we we see that at the end of the month. I gave a little bit more money to to something that matters. That's trackable. This is hard. Because how do you track whether or not we're giving away control how do you track whether or not our anxiety is decreasing because our trust is increasing so you have the opportunity today to just sit sit in your anxiety stay in a place of worry that's an option or we could move to a higher and a deeper place and that would be allowing a good god to lead us into a place of greater trust philippians 4 6 and 7 paul writes be anxious for nothing be anxious for nothing But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is be anxious and nothing how. (sighs) Submit. Submit it to God in prayer. Submit it to God and say, God, you control this. Look backwards and recognize, God, you brought me here. Man, and my job is to be diligent and to work hard. My job is to make the most of the gifts you've given me. My job is to absolutely be a good steward of all that you've entrusted to me. But what is a steward? A steward sits one level under the king, has been given authority to do something. Our job is then to tear down the walls of control and insecurity and replace them with a soul rooted in hope and joy of a father who has our best interests and a savior who's already done the work of making us whole again. And so walking away from anxiety means walking into the arms of a trustworthy God who loves us beyond our wildest imagination. What it requires of us, which is so much harder than I'm about to make it sound, is that we would open our lives, we would open our hands, we would open our hearts, and we would say, I will be yours. It is a daily choice to submit to God and say, you are God, and I am not, and I will be yours, and I will follow your lead, and I know you're in control, and I have to believe that. And so today, 
I will be yours. And then I wake up tomorrow and I say, I will be yours. And the day after that, I say, I will be yours. And eventually, it takes. And so when we sing, I will be yours for all my life, it's something that isn't, it isn't a burden. It's the greatest of blessings. There's a switch that flips when we feel like submitting to God is hard work to like let him do this thing. And I really, and there's a point in your life when it will flip. And I will be yours is the greatest feeling of security you will ever know. And we go from being insecure people driven by the will to power to totally secure people going, I'm yours. And if I'm yours, then I'm good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in an anxious time. We live in a world that is uh, fraught with expectations. Father, if I am honest, so much of my own anxiety comes from trying to meet the expectations of others and expectations that I've created out of nowhere for myself. Father, I pray that in uh, this moment that we collectively would be able to turn that over to you. That we would recognize that we exist because you gave life, because you breathed into us. That in our greatest moments of worry, it is us saying, you don't know what I need. And yet, Father, you know everything we need. That before I was ever in this world, you had sent your son. Before I'd sinned my first, Jesus breathed his last. And Father, I pray that you would remind me of that. God, that you would remind me to think. Even when I feel like things are falling apart, that I might think and remember and root in the truth of your word. And Father, every day when I open my hands and I say, I will be yours, that God, you would turn that burden into a blessing. That it wouldn't be hard work to let go of the steering wheel, but it would be an incredible blessing to watch you in the world that you created, in the world that you control, and to simply glory at being a part of the journey. So Father, we open our lives to you. Ask you to convict us of the places where we are holding on too tightly. Father, embrace us, affirm us, remind us that you love us. You are our Father and we are your children. God, we love you. We pray in your Son's saving name. Amen.